Hello, and welcome to the new season of The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's best contenders for the industry's biggest awards. I'm Shana Naomi Crockmall, the digital director at EW, and I am joined this year by my co-host, EW's Awardist columnist, David Canfield. Hello, David. Hello, Shana. And we also have EW's editor-in-chief, J.D. Heyman. Hi. Hi. Hey, J.D. This podcast is part of our comprehensive awards coverage in the magazine online at EW.com. It's uh, more or less our fourth season, counting two for Emmys and two for uh, the Globes and Oscars season of it all. Happy to be back. This week for our first episode of 2019-2020, uh, we're going to talk about the contenders for the Golden Globes and the Oscars, particularly the early contenders, folks whose work came out very early in the eligibility period. We also have an interview with Taryn Edgerton, Rocketman's Elton John, who joined us for a very serious but also very candid interview. He talks about his transformation into the celebrated rock star, how they captured the film's really beautiful mix of live and studio recordings for his singing. He sings through the whole film. And all those comparisons to Bohemian Rhapsody, a film we spent, I think, too much time talking about last year. <laughs> um, but he gamely takes that on also. I've never poured so much of myself into something. I've never felt so devoted to something over such a protracted period of time. And then to have this extraordinary friendship come out of it as well. I can't tell you how weird it is to be, to become so close to someone that you portray. And our relationship has really evolved and shifted over the past sort of three and a half years. And, um, you know, it used to be that I'd turn up at his house and my heart would skip a beat before he came to the door because, you know, it's Elton John. That's what we've got this week, but thank you David, JD, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Super excited. Um, so since we're starting, you know, for, I think it's always, the Oscars don't happen until February 9th. <laughs> it's uh, early November, and we're going to spend a lot of time over the next few months talking about this because it's our jobs. Yes. But I think for a lot of people who are listening, it's not their jobs, and they're, they're coming into this with less of a sense of a calendar. Technically, anything from January 1st, 2019 to December 31st, 2019 is eligible for Golden Globes and for Oscars. Um, but we all know that awards season, LA's favorite season, it is largely in the very end part of the year. Sure. Um, but let's talk about some of the films that we want to make sure we don't forget, because for a lot of different reasons, they came out really early in the year, um, some very early, but a lot of them sort of landing around that time in Cannes, which is in May. What do you, David, think are the standouts from that sort of first wave of films? Yeah, I mean, even before Cannes, we would look at Sundance, which tends to field at least one major contender a year, last year being uh, actually an exception. Uh, and this year, I think it's The Farewell, Lulu Wing's um, really beautiful family drama, um, which stars Aquafina in a breakout performance. Uh, it's sort of carried forward from a really well-received premiere at Sundance, and everyone on that film is making the circuit rounds, and it's one of the critical hits of the year, and I think it really strikes a nerve for a lot of people. I think we'll see some docs probably on the Sun from the Sundance premieres yeah, also um, in the longer awards race. Was there anything else at Sundance that stood out to you, JD? Well, you know, I was thinking about it. I mean, I agree with David about uh, The Farewell. I think The Farewell is that little movie that will make it all the way through. Uh, every year, um, there's a film that captures people's fascination, at least within the Hollywood community. And even though it's small, I think it will it will be around. So I think The Farewell, and particularly Aquafina's performance in The Farewell, are things we'll be looking at. And then just generally, when I, th I think about early films, or films that come out relatively early, I think about Us, I think about Lupita Nyong'o in that movie. Mm -hmm. That um, came out at South by Southwest, so that was yes, in March. March, so, so a long time, ancient history. Ancient history, <laughs> you know, like, like a long time ago. But Much also, like Jordan Peele's Get Out. Yeah, exactly, and that obviously had a great life through awards season and we also have to remember that a lot of the movies that we're talking about people actually haven't seen right. mm -hmm. but they have seen a movie like us and I I think when we look at especially what the Academy is doing um, and how they're voting they seem to have room in their hearts for a broadly popular movie that's sort of a horror movie that reaches a larger audience which is what us did mm -hmm. and then you know I think Aquafina just really killed it in that film so there's the two that I can think of immediately that came out early that I think could really with the right campaign do pretty well mm. and then when you get into the can of it all so you have Rocketman, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite all of those started there, so it was kind of like late May. Mm. I think also I was 
thinking about what you're saying, like Farewell and Us are both already in home release. You can stream those at home. So is Rocket yes. Man. I think having that broader exposure, both for voters. Mm -hmm. I mean, because frankly, like Academy voters aren't going to watch all of the films. Right. And so when you have the chance that they may have just seen it anyway on home, you know, at home or in the theaters, you're kind of broadening yeah. the reach well, of it. And particularly with the farewell, I always think of the big sick the year before. Now mm. does that ultimately translate to a lot of Academy Awards? I don't know, but it does have that special magic mm -hmm. that people seem to uh, love. And then a movie like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which if you think about it, and as you're saying, can, I mean, it's been around for a while. <laughs> Since in, July, and it like opened wide in July, so yeah, it's right. really, really been out there. It's been out there, and it did well, and I think we can never discount a big, nostalgic, Hollywood-loving movie. Oh, yeah. With um, big so stars. to me, that's the one, even now, although we have some things that are in the shoot that we have seen, but people haven't seen, that I think it's going to be way out in front for a lot of folks. Yeah, I agree. I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is one of the year's major, major contenders, and that goes for no matter what uh, we haven't seen yet. It has the elements of Tarantino that the Academy has embraced before, and also a sort of sweet, nostalgic, uplifting quality to it as well that I think is a little new for him, and mm -hmm. that could take him all the way in a way that he hasn't been able to go all the way before. It's interesting in general when you talk about that can period particularly because on the one end you have studio movies like Rocket Man and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which are sort of coming out there in a big way and you mentioned Parasite which won the festival uh, and is absolutely a phenomenon really for a foreign language film in the Oscar race and another film that really interests me from that period is Pain and Glory mm -hmm. by Pedro Moldovar which has I think Antonio Banderas's career best performance and he's never been nominated for best actor which is a very wow. competitive category this year. Yeah, yeah it's but, a great year for actors. Yeah. And of course, again, with Pain and Glory, a deeply nostalgic, mm. self-referential mm -hmm. self to, to, a, to a beloved director. So I do see that movie as having, I mean, I, I think it's Parasite all the way sure. in the foreign language category. I just feel that that's the love of that movie. It's it, I could see that just not really being challenged, but there's some really interesting films. Cannes is always spotty. Yeah, there are years. Does it matter? Like, how much does winning the Palme d'Or at Cannes or these other prizes? Like, how much does that? I don't help think or not matter. I, you know, it's interesting, and and certainly it really is year to year there. I I, I think um, there are years where there'll be entrants there that will not have much resonance, mm -hmm. um, particularly when we're looking at American film. Um, Typically, um, the studios approach to Cannes, I think, varies so radically year to year that it's hard to see any any way that it's predictive, except for that it gets conversations going around interesting films. Like Parasite, I think, mm -hmm. right? I think it's probably a foreign language films. I mean, there. really, Cannes is an international-facing event for 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 the entire world's community. So I think it matters a lot in terms of international distribution of film and sort of getting that conversation going. And I I think Parasite's reception there. Um, I think indicates how strong it is in that category. It is a unique year in that it might be a year where the movie that got the most buzz out of that festival, which is obviously Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, will go on to be, to be best picture. I can see that happening. Tarantino is a unique director when it comes to France, and I think the French really mm -hmm. embrace him, and that was very, very can the way they you know, you guys probably remember he was still allegedly editing this movie right until yeah. the last minute, and it was very, very dramatic. And then, you know, it was, of course, the standing ovations and everything yes. that happened out of it. But uh, as you were saying, David, I, I think that film, say what you will about it, is a sweet movie about friendship that rewrites the most traumatic chapter for many people in Hollywood. Mm. So it's hard to see how that isn't rewarded when you think about um, you think about the voters um, in the Academy, particularly, many of whom would obviously remember those events. Mm. Let's talk about then the kind of mid-range, as I've been thinking about it, things that premiered at Venice, at Telluride, at Toronto, sort of very critic-centered festivals, mm. yes. right? I mean, some of them are, are more broadly popular, like Toronto, I think, in particular, has a huge, many people mm -hmm. see those films outside right. of just the journalists, but um, I think those are really sort of setting up the media play, right? Let's talk about what we saw there or what other people saw there. David? It's hard not to start with Joker, I feel, yeah. um, which premiered at Venice and at the very least 
surprised in terms of what it was that it was a potential Oscar t contender to begin with, given that it is a comic mo book movie. And when we talk about something like Black Panther, it's a little different. Mm -hmm. Where Joker, it's really the aesthetic, the performance, the direction. Um, it and very few people had seen it before Venice. And Venice Correct. itself is like, not all American outlets even have critics who are there. So it had that sort of like weird, like far away rumor land kind of uh, like people right. talking about it before then it was at Toronto right after. There's this sort of like late August, early September haze where <laughs> various movies that are going to be in the conversation premiere at various parts of the globe. And Joker launched in Venice, which was the first of the three. And the reception was controversial, I think, mm -hmm. to say the least. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't seen it yet, but uh, it ultimately won the Golden Lion. <laughs> Which you know, it's interesting, surprising. right? Yeah, I thought it was, well, you know, we, we had early conversations around this film, and I, I had seen it before Venice, and the um, discussion around it being an awards movie struck me as surprising. I mean, they were very, but very early, Warner Brothers was very confident this was going to be an awards movie. And Which is why we, we, we saw all it went very to see early it. and yeah. they showed it to us because of that. Not right. was it, it wasn't like the, come see this movie that we think is going to be a late summer blockbuster. It was the, come see this movie that we think should be in contention for awards. I think that was very intentional and very directed on their part. I think it was smart of them to take it to Venice. I think a movie like that at a festival like that is going to get a huge reaction. It's a statement. Yeah. And I also think, you know, as we look at festivals, particularly Telluride, and Venice have just increased in prominence in the last five years or more. They've they've really become places in terms of the promotion of film where they get noticed. I think Venice, obviously, and Telluride are very photogenic. Telluride is very inward-facing. It has mostly to do with people going there to watch films. The mm -hmm. cliche being, oh, you can just walk around and no one will bother you, kind of. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, but Venice is clearly about a big, splashy moment. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, as we've discussed endlessly, I think, amongst ourselves about this film, this very um, tricky to understand or feel about movie. I mean, I sort of feel, I felt, I felt it was hard to watch. Clearly, it resonated po with a popular audience. Um, um, it will be interesting to see where that goes as mm -hmm. we move into the year. I think it has a little bit of that, I mean... Anyone who works at EW got to listen to me rant about this film quite a bit. Yep. I found it unconscionably violent mm -hmm. and not good enough overall to warrant it. But I, I do wonder, um, we spent, like I said, maybe too much time talking about a different movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, last year that almost none of us thought was particularly good. Right. But the amount of box office and the sort of popular effect of it like kept putting it back into the conversation in a way that we had to keep talking about it and kind of keep coming back to it. And I feel like though completely different movies, Joker, I feel like because it's broken these box office records and because in its own way it... Um, created this conversation to some extent about the role sure. of violence and the sort of comic bookness of it all, I think is going to be in a similar place where it's hard to leave off the list, yeah. even if people have very mixed feelings about whether it should actually be on the list. And I think you've hit on something in terms of the way we discuss, or rather the Academy looks at films. You know, it's really, when we were all growing up in entertainment, um, the Academy seemed, perhaps this is unfair, there seemed to be a bias against broadly popular movies. Mm -hmm. There seemed to be really a move towards what we would consider to be indie or niche movies, particularly in the 90s, and then there was this corresponding complaint that the Academy was ignoring popular success. And now we've seen, in recent years, a kind of swing back to making yeah. sure somehow that these big films that um, might be of great quality that might have been ignored in years past are being recognized for um, the big awards. I mean, beyond the technical awards, but the acting sure. awards and the category awards that we pay the most attention to. And this one, you know, where I come down with it, and I think I agree with you, Shana, about its overall, um, I found it problematic. I think everyone agrees that Joaquin Phoenix is an incredible actor, and and maybe that will be how they reconcile all of these feelings. It's hard to know because we are talking about a specific demographic voting for this, mm -hmm. and how do they feel about it? Do mm -hmm. they, you know, they tend to, I think, 
to to stereotype the way the voting often goes, look for those movies that are rather more uh, celebratory or uh, in in some more 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 obviously yeah. important. Yes. Yeah. You yeah. know. One that I think is sort of a little bit on the flip side of this was Jojo Rabbit, right? right? So that was a movie that I felt critically we were all super impressed by. We thought was really well done, really compelling. Um, hasn't had a huge amount of box, like even sort of as a a moderate yes. um, release of a funny movie about Hitler, which is <laughs> an interesting sell to a mainstream audience yes. anyway, no matter how good it is at the satire that it's and the kind of message it's making, has not hit a large audience. The traction hasn't quite been there. David, you wrote about this for your column. Yeah. Like, the tra like do you think, where do you think it will be? I think Jojo Rabbit and Joker are really interesting contrasts because if you actually look at the, the critical breakdown of the way critics have reacted to these movies, it's it's not too different in terms of the overall split. Mm -hmm. uh, both have elicited pretty mixed reactions. Mm -hmm. But Jojo Rabbit, improbably given its subject, is a very uplifting it's, movie. It's totally a movie you come out of and you want to tell everyone you know to go see it. Yeah. Like despite it's so interesting, it being right? so, um, like when you just, you're like when you have to articulate why, mm -hmm. I just kept saying like, I just yeah. go see it. And it, then come ask me why I asked it you win, to it win, say It that. wins you over. I mean, yeah. it really won me over in the end. And the thing about Joker and my skepticism with it as an awards film is it's very rare for you to see a critically mixed almost nihilistic movie go that far. It's mm -hmm. more likely you see something like Green Book or something like Jojo Rabbit mm -hmm. that gives you the warm and fuzzies a little bit mm -hmm. um, and, and puts forward something that feels socially important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, I, I guess I'm surprised, like you guys, about the reaction to Jojo Rabbit, which I unequivocally liked. Absolutely. And I... I feel um, comfortable with humor about Nazis, I guess, in a way that other people don't. I felt it like it was an interesting choice. Going yeah, I think we all loved it. Yeah. Um, I, I do understand why it doesn't necessarily resonate because it's a quirky movie. And so it's more like a Wes Anderson movie than it is like um, Black it's Panther. So it's not going to drive the box office. But I'm surprised it's sort of that people feel as as morally conflicted about it as they do, mm. given that there has there's a, going back to Charlie Chaplin, there's mm -hmm. a long history of making fun of Nazis. So I yeah. I didn't find that disturbing. And I, I, I think it's we like morally challenging. Like, yes. when you say it like that. It is a morally challenging movie to watch. Like I the first like 20 minutes. I mean, as a person who is Jewish and as a person who has spent a lot of time thinking about, but also in many ways, finding things that can be humorous to talk about in this situation, sure. right? In the tradition of a Mel Brooks of it all. Like the first like 20 minutes are like, this is really funny. And then you sort of have a moment of being like, is this too funny? Like, are people going to watch this and not understand that this isn't supposed to be funny? Like, yeah, I yeah. really wrestle. And then like you sort of hit this midway point in the movie where you're like, oh no, wait. This movie poignant. actually is heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and very short, serious right. about how we all have to resist fascism in our own ways. It's actually like a very serious, teachy kind of movie. After, it, but it's challenging to watch. I found, I guess, what I thought was very clever about the film um, was that it really is. If you were eight, how would you encounter or yes. imbibe these ideas? And I thought, for that alone, it's a really interesting film. And I guess, you know. I think in the in terms of the Jewish perspective on the Holocaust or Nazis, I mean, um, Jewish entertainers have been leading the way in ridiculing Nazis from the beginning. And I think the idea of ridiculing fascists is, I think fascists hate that the most, don't they? Yeah. Mm. So, um, well, we're, if we were the Academy, it would obviously do really, really well. <laughs> and I think, I think it will. I think, I think it does, it resonates. When it resonates, it really resonates, and that kind yeah. of passion is really important in this kind of conversation. And I think it is actually helped by being a little early. I think if it had come out later, there would be not enough time to sort of overcome that question in that in the yeah. Jojo Rabbit. I think the earlier lead time of having come out more like in a September, October time, and it's still opening wide now. It's not even everywhere right. Right now. So, it's still I, kind of in that. Maybe that will broaden it a little. And obviously the Academy voters have a long history with this period and liking movies sure. that are in the exactly. period. <laughs> so it could it could work to its advantage. I think the best analogy for um, for Joker is really Nightcrawler, which is a movie mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with comic books, but is also about a very good actor really transforming himself physically in a basically 
Mm-hmm. Ugly and unlikable world. Now people mm-hmm. love Nightcrawler, but nobody really went to see it. And I and think it's you know it it is kind of film that deals with a kind of topic in cinema. I mean, it does kind of you know I'm sure we'll get to this at some point about put the lie to the Scorsese critique of superhero movies. I think you know the storytelling is obviously something that uh, is used to explore these themes. I guess I just found it kind of hard to get through. Um, but I don't think millions of people around the world agree. And I also think it's interesting that it, is, it has provoked conversation, and we'll see. I tend to think, just thinking about it from the perspective of someone who looks at these things, that it, it, it's, a, it's a hard play for voters. It's, it's, it's not, I, I, I think it's, it's, it, could, it could just be that this is where we are with it, and it's not going to get that critical response. Maybe a globe, it could happen, mm-hmm. um, but I don't and know. Even the Joaquin of it, I feel like, yes, the transformation, the performance, it has all of the boxes you check, right, for an Oscar-worthy performance, but it's also, I don't think any of us is sitting around being like, do we think Joaquin Phoenix is a good actor? Right. I'm not sure. Like, I, don't, I don't I think, think it takes this in. movie for, like, <laughs> he's great. This performance he's been, was, he's been in the race this performance was harrowing, before. but also in some ways not surprising right. to watch, right? And I wonder if that will slow the momentum on think, that a little. I do think he's a serious contender. Absolutely. But I will say, you know, having, when we were on the ground in Toronto, Joker did premiere there. That's where I saw it. Yeah. So did Parasite, which only built on what it had oh, started yeah. at Cannes. But the movies that were talked about the most were, in my, from what I could tell, Parasite, Jojo Rabbit, which ultimately won the People's mm-hmm. Choice Award, um, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which yeah. really... That's an interesting think, one, right? It's an interesting one. I don't think there was a dry eye in the theater that I And that had. was, we, we hadn't seen almost, I don't, I didn't know anyone who had seen that before Toronto. They held it really, really close in a way that we were like, a little suspicious about in a jaded journalist way, where you're like, why won't they show it to us? That must not be that good. And then that was not how people felt coming no. back out of it. I think that movie has probably the greatest potential to surprise us because it's been very cannily marketed. Yeah. And um, it has the most, um, the subject people are the most familiar with, right? With Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers, like that's. And the campaign seems to center around, you're really bummed out about everything in this world and this figure is this person that brings us together. It will be interesting to see how that plays. It's a really smart play, mm-hmm. and like you were saying, Shana, I think uh, I, I think we were all thinking at the beginning of the cycle, well, nobody's seen it, it can't, maybe there's something not great about it, but we're, the wind just seems- Just because we're jaded journalists. You know, like maybe we're, <laughs> we're just mean, yeah. um, but it's obviously, um, it's been well put out there, and uh, you, you ta- never count out Tom Hanks. Never count out Tom And Mario Heller, the director, who I thought was criminally underrecognized last year mm-hmm. um, for Can You Ever Forgive, Forgive Me, was so good, and mm-hmm. I'm hoping maybe this will bring her more attention. It's, it's going to be a great year for direct. I mean, it has been a great year for directing, and I, I think when you're talking about Bond with Parasite or what you're talking about her, um, Greta Gerwig, um, Little uh, Martin Scorsese, obviously, um, and Noah Baumbach. You're seeing like an incredible. Uh, this is probably so the first marriage year. story. We we forgot. Yeah, to we talk haven't about talked marriage about story. It. I think it's the other one that some people have seen, but it's not widely. It's hit uh, some of these festivals. It was at Toronto. And it's about to start hitting. Theaters. And it's about to start hitting theaters, and then Netflix. What I know you really loved it, David. This is yeah. I think this and Parasite are my personal favorite movies of the year. I think. This is a huge moment for Noah Baumbach. It's a huge moment for Adam Driver, who I just think is remarkable. And definitely Joaquin Phoenix's biggest competition and best actor. Um, it's just, it's a movie that you feel like Noah Baumbach has been making movies his whole career to make. It's, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, um, I have uh, seldom seen a movie that is so complete in terms of exactly. what, what he, he accomplishes. And particularly, I think he kind of turns on its head what you think of, if you know Noah Baumbach in his movies, what you think his movies are about. It's an utterly sincere movie, and it is a deeply, again, to use a word I think that will probably resonate with voters, it's a sweet movie about breaking up. And the 
di directing is what you really notice. I mean, I had seen the report within 48 hours of seeing mm -hmm. a marriage story, the also marriage story. Also with Adam Driver. Also with Adam Driver. And the, it's not that I think the report isn't a, an, an, an interesting film, but I think when you look at the performances one to the other, you really see, um, and with Scarlett Johansson, I mean, the entire Laura Dern, Alan um, Alda, Alan Alda um, Julie Haggerty. Julie Haggerty, who is great, great. in this film. Um, and Ray Liotta, who's Ray Liotta. great in the film. I mean, there's nobody who's bad in it, and it is really good and completely riveting. I, I, um, I just think that he gives a performance that establishes him as one of the greatest actors of his generation. And um, I would be surprised if he, um, well, I, I've, I live to be surprised, but I think he's the front runner for <laughs> best mm -hmm. actor. Yeah, I would agree with that. So those are really the, the early contenders. We have a handful of films that are, you know are holiday end of year releases, some of which we've seen, some of which we haven't, that I want to mention briefly, um, but we'll come back to because we have plenty of future mm. episodes to do that. Little Women, mm. The Irishman, 1917, Bombshell. What else? Is there anything else that has yet to really emerge that you think is um, I, serious contender? I have seen Todd Haynes' Dark Waters, which I don't think will figure too prominently into this, but Mark Ruffalo is really strong in it. No one has seen Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell, but he is known mm -hmm. for a late-breaking entrant. American Sniper pretty notoriously mm -hmm. came into that race very late and came to be one of the major players. Um, but I think that about covers what we have not seen yet. I'm particularly fascinated by 1917, which has a very ambitious mm -hmm. conceit it's, mm -hmm. uh, from director Sam Mendes, mm -hmm. and uh, I love Little Women. Yeah, Hi. they're they're a strong group. I guess you'd say it's the sophomore class, right, of things coming. And um, particularly with Richard Jewell, there's a performance in that film that I think we're all anticipating, sure. seeing how um, the lead does with that. It's exciting. I um, I think Little Women is going to be interesting too because mm -hmm. it is um, obviously a much beloved subject in a much made film. We, I think we all agreed it's an, a, a very good movie. Mm -hmm. So good. Um, with a standout performance from Florence, Florence Pugh, Pugh, I think that um, establishes her as the next big actress in, in, in Hollywood. She has a, you know, it's like when you saw Jennifer Lawrence for the first time, you realized how great somebody can be, and she's certainly mm -hmm. got that. Yeah, every moment she's on screen. And I think with something like Little Women, it's a it's a classic and it's a, it's a commercial movie, but you check all those boxes. But you also see the artistry that Greta yes, Gerwig brings absolutely. to it, and that's a really important combination. Yeah, it doesn't movie. feel like just a commercial Christmas release movie. Like it has a, a intelligence to it and a mm -hmm. style to it, and so many smart choices uh, from the directing of it that I think it really elevates mm -hmm. into that conversation, even if it wasn't intended to, which it clearly is. Um, you, you, David, you wrote a great column as part of your award as columnist duties, also just about actresses. So to quickly mm. touch on a couple of people who we haven't mentioned because maybe the films overall we don't feel like are as much in the big, big best picture contention, but some amazing standout performances. Obviously, Renee Zellweger and Judy. Yes, who is um, the very overwhelming front runner in yes. that race right the now. number one question i have been asked by my friends who knew that i was spending like months of my summer just going and seeing all of these awards potential movies almost every single person was like is judy as great in, or is renee as great in judy as you as everyone's saying like it was like predated the buzz of even people seeing yeah. the movie and i think deservedly yeah yeah i think the thing about judy that's interesting because you you hear some folks sort of um criticize the the film itself saying the movie is small and she's so big she's the biggest thing in it and she's the greatest thing in it but the movie is just okay i i think um she's held to a bit of an unfair standard as a performer i think she does what joaquin phoenix does oh, i think yeah i think mm. she her transformation is incredible i think she's a very um physical actor in a way that she doesn't get credit for and her ability to kind of move into a role and really um, take it on. I mean, from the voice to the, the way she holds her body to the singing, it's, it's a totally compelling performance of someone who is really messed up and, um, and, and yet endearing. Yeah. And um, I, I just think it's hard to dislodge her from where she is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, David and I have gone back and forth on our picks, and it's just, I, I look at that field, and I can't even think of anyone else who could come in yeah. and take it away from her. I mean, I would say that handful of other folks we've been talking about there, obviously Scarlett Johansson yes. for Marriage Story, Cynthia Erivo for Harriet, 
um, Charlize Theron for Bombshell. And, Which is an and interesting contender. no shade to Florence Pugh, but also Shersha is amazing in Little Women. Yeah, right? and I think she really comes into the, to the role yeah. of Joe yeah. in the second half of the movie, which obviously for the purposes of Oscar conversations is more important if she leaves you on a high. Yeah. I think that there's this sort of narrative going around that Best Actress is very weak this year. And compared to Best Actor, perhaps that's true. But I also feel like this is a really exciting opportunity to look at performances that may not figure into this conversation or nearly. You mentioned Lupita Nyong'o, who I think yeah. is just mm -hmm. astonishing in us, and more importantly, does something completely different mm -hmm. than what we thought she could do. Totally. Um, it's just, I just did not know she could go there, uh, and then some, <laughs> in that movie's case. Uh, and then someone like Aquafina, as we were talking about before. The Farewell's a very small movie, but Aquafina really announces herself as a commanding leading actress. I see Aquafina uh, and Lupita uh, figuring in this Definitely. in this race in interesting ways. I think you're right, David, that it does establish Aquafina as a serious dramatic actress who, who's really likable um, as a performer. Very appealing. Uh, and then Lupita, as you say, it it is a genre movie, um, but she does something completely different than, as you say, we thought she could do. Um, you know, there may be some contenders that we're not thinking of at the second and, and from, from foreign films that may just leap out. But it isn't one of those years where you see three or four British actresses, really. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you think, oh, it, you know, people talked about Helen Mirren early in this uh, yes. mm -hmm. race. And, you know, there, you can't count somebody out. Like, you never know. Um, but I'm not seeing... Um, the field of deep performances among actresses in the same way. I think there is going to be, there are going to be some quirky choices in there for films that might not have found um, an audience uh, in the same way. It's, it, Bombshell's an interesting movie. I like that it's a film that really takes that scandal and, and tells it from an entirely female perspective, which yeah. is the first time that's been done. Um, and I do think what Charlize does is interesting, but when I walk away from that movie, I just think Margot Robbie, Margot Robbie takes Margot that Robbie. movie. For sure. And um, my fascination with her as an actor is that she always has, for the most part, pretty underwritten parts. Nothing that she does is on, on the page. And she comes out of that movie um, a fully fleshed out, totally sympathetic and interesting character. So I sort of feel like she'll get a Best Supporting Actress nod. But you guys, Laura Dern in Laura a Dern Marriage, Marriage Story. Story. Is, um, <laughs> um, David, you, as part of this, you have also, you've really spelled out EW's predictions. Mm -hmm. um, you can go to EW.com and read these predictions. You'll be updating them to some extent, right? And most of these we've kind of like just talked through here. But is there anything you want to say about, I feel like that's such a weird burden to put on a writer or a handful of writers you worked with, our writer Joey Nolfi yeah. on this, and I know it was in some ways very much a group effort. JD and I discussed. Yeah. yeah How, what do you pleased. want to say? What, is there a, quickly, I would say, is there something you want to say about the process of this that can help people who go and read the list on EW.com or read it in the magazine, like what, what do you want to say about how that came to be? So there's no science to it, but there also is some sort of, of math to it. I think you have to look at a lot of factors. You have to rely on your gut a little bit. Like in the case of Joker, a lot of signs would point to it being a major contender, but then you have to ask yourself, is this a movie that when it comes down to it, people are going to check off? So you're really, you are thinking about the voting of it, not, it's obviously your predictions are about who will win or sure. be nominated and not necessarily who you think should. Sure, it's, yeah, it's yeah. very much about who is going to make it. Yeah, I'm not personally a fan of Joker, but I think that that movie has a shot at being nominated. Um, I absolutely love Marriage Story. I wouldn't call it the front runner to win Best Picture right now. So it goes both ways. Um, yeah, there's movies on here that we're predicting that we have not seen yet, like 1917, um, which all signs point to it being a major contender. But totally speculative. Totally speculative. Yeah. Fair. So there's no super secret computer that you consult. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. This we is not. This is ten million not dollars. data driven <laughs> so much as more editorial. Fair. Uh, we're going to have some more bold takes later. Um, we'll each stake out one bold take claim that we want to. Um, we're also going to hear now from Taron Edgerton, who when you went through, he was not on your, uh, you know. Top five. Top five. I was like, what did you call it? That they have a lock, that they're likely. Well, yeah, the five um, who would But you nominated. did describe him as being in the hunt. Yes. Uh, so he's, you know, 
putting the effort in. He has certainly been at a lot of different events in LA over the last couple of weeks, yeah. um, meeting and greeting folks. And my question with him is, if Rami Malek, why not Taryn Edgerton? Yeah. Why doesn't he well, get a look? And I think the performance is so much stronger than Rami Malek, um, not just because he does all of his own singing, which is impressive. Um, it's a better and movie. Compelling. I it think allows it's him a to, much better yeah. movie. Um, it doesn't, more, he doesn't, he doesn't have there. the uh, overbite to contend with. He forgot about the overbite factor. <laughs> no, just Important a fake um, tooth gap that they painted mm. on. Um, all right, this is our interview with Taryn Edgerton. Hi everyone, I'm Shana. This is the Awardist podcast, and we are here with Taryn Edgerton to talk about Rocket Man Hi. and to welcome back the season of The Awardist. Um, our first episode for today, we're talking about films that may have come out earlier in the year, but mm -hmm. that we still think should be in contention for when we're talking about awards, since that is what this podcast well, is about. How very sweet of you to have me on. Thank you. <laughs> and we definitely think you and Rocket Man should be part of the conversation. Thank you. Uh, but it's been a little bit, right? So you premiered at Cannes in we May. Did, yep. And you shot last year in 2018. And that's correct. So how long of a journey has this been for you? Um, a while, actually, <laughs> um, a few years. It's so I think the first time I was officially asked about, you know, how I felt about it, um, as if you need to ask, uh, <laughs> uh, was in 2016. But I was actually aware of the project even before then, and um, had kind of fantasized about the prospect of me being the guy to do it. But at that point, there was another actor attached. Tom Hardy was going to do it for a very long time. Um, but I think what with him being an extraordinarily busy actor, mm -hmm. I think he actually just got a bit too old to play someone whose you know, journey starts at 17, as, as, as is the case with this movie. Um, so yeah, 2016, and then it took a couple of years for all of the stars to align in the way that they needed to, with myself and Dexter and, um, and Paramount becoming a part of the whole uh, endeavor. And then we started shooting, I believe, we started shooting in, at the very start of August of 2018, but we'd been in studio for, for a good few months before. And then. rehearsals, I imagine. And rehearsals yeah. for some of the big dance numbers. I mean, but it really felt like a lot of the work was happening at Abbey Road and also at Air Studios um, in Hampstead, where we were really f beginning to play with the songs and figure out how they were going to be used as part, as you know, how they were going to be used to tell the story. Was there a moment in that long process where you were like, okay, this is this is really going to be something. I can tell there's something even bigger than all of the the show of it all. Um, I think, do you know, until I saw the final cut of the movie, I never really relaxed. I've never felt so passionate about something and so protective of something, actually. And, and I think it, it always felt, it just, it just felt like, the kind of slightly, um, not slightly, very candid nature of it and the quite exposing nature of of, uh, of Rocketman and the way we tell Elton's story, given that it's from a, from the rehabilitation clinic where he began his journey towards recovery and, um, and the fact that we see him, you know, in some fairly compromising scenarios. And I, I think I always always was probably frankly slightly paranoid about um about those parts of the story being filleted in the edited room or you know or, or gradually be, being removed from the script over the course of the shoot um but to be honest it just never happened i think paramount knew and understood the the, the mandate of the the, the project and what elton wanted certainly what myself dexter fletcher the director and matthew vaughan wanted um and, you know, we were just lucky that everyone kind of synchronized in that vision, really. Um, and there was no kind of isolated voice who was trying to get us to pull back or, you know, I was constantly paranoid that it was going to get turned into a PG-13. And I was sort of most proud of the work that was characterized by being only really suitable for an older viewer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and is there a moment? I mean, I think. I feel like everyone finishes a project and they're like, oh, we're all going to be friends forever. That was so great. Huh. But I feel like you've had this really uncommon experience to really get to continue this relationship with Elton through whether it was the audiobook or the other performances that you've yeah. been doing. But is there a moment that you look back now through this whole process, even up to now, and you're like, this is, this is something I'm going to remember forever. Like truly looking back 20 years from now, that'll be the thing that stands out. 
What this project? Yeah. I mean, there's no two ways about it. For me, this project just it, I've never poured so much of myself into something. I've never felt so devoted to something over such a protracted period of time. And then to have this extraordinary friendship come out of it as well. I can't tell you how weird it is to be, to become so close to someone that you portray. And our relationship has really evolved and shifted over the past sort of three and a half years. And, um, you know, it used to be that I'd turn up at his house and my heart would skip a beat before he came to the door because, you know, it's Elton John. But now I don't think my heart would flutter and it has just become a very normal thing now, you know, being a part of Elton's life and David and the boys, their sons. Um, and that's been one of the really wonderful takeaways, you know, lots of people involved in this project I had long-standing relationships with anyway, um, and I've worked with before. The crew are all people that I've made multiple films with, um, Matthew Vaughan, Dexter Fletcher, but um, that relationship that's formed between me and the man that I'm depicting uh, has been a really amazing amazing bonus um yeah yeah <laughs> um so obviously there's been a lot of physical transformation for this role there mm. was the hair there was the um you know the teeth the many many costume fittings yeah but let's talk about the singing and the dancing a yeah. little bit so there were a couple of songs you used live audio in yeah. the, actually in the film though you sang throughout right like while you were filming you were singing yeah. live and i mean it wasn't even, always used yeah even you know even the songs where what you hear in the movie isn't what was performed on set mm -hmm. there isn't one moment in the film where i'm miming i'm always people can always hear me singing on set but the nature of filmmaking is such that if you've got a set with 200 people, you know, plus, mm -hmm. and you're singing a song, that audio, the audio that's captured in that moment isn't going to be unadulterated and pure, you know? Right. It's, it's gonna yeah. be compromised by all of the paraphernalia of filmmaking. So for something like Saturday Night, that was initially pre-recorded for the purposes of shooting, but then after the fact, we went back and re-recorded it to, um, incorporate the physicality of what we did because of course lots of that is found on the day but yes where possible where it felt isolated and um and just me on set mm -hmm. i was absolutely insistent that it uh be captured live on set because there's like a nice blend in places i mean really shout out to the sound editors there was, yeah I think, there and john hayes as well who captures the sounds incredible. at the beginning yeah. of at the troubadour or crocodile rock where you can hear you sort of like breathing into the mic in this way where it's like you're sort of yeah nervous so that, and so that, that mic in yeah. the, that mic for the crocodile rock section is live mm -hmm. so um so the breaths you hear and the opening of the the opening of the song where it's a sort of uh you know, there's this incredible silence in this space, and I think, I remember when Rock was young. Um, that's all live. But then the moment at which the band kick in mm -hmm. becomes a recording because my vocal that is being captured on set is is becomes um, not contaminated, but it's no longer a pure audio mm -hmm. recording because you have musicians around and a cheering crowd and um, so we just basically levitation the sound of levitation the sound of the sound of the rig <laughs> that made everyone levitate but you know we basically and I think that you know we used a variety of techniques and filmmaking is just problem solving and uh, and you know there's several problems that present themselves every few minutes and you know um, and so I think there's wisdom in not being you know uh, precious about those things mm -hmm. because ultimately it but then then you're then you're doing something for a press sound bite rather than for the betterment of the film do you have a favorite elton song that wasn't in the film that you wish you'd gotten to sing or record yes uh someone saved my life tonight mm -hmm. from um captain fantastic and the brown dirt cowboy is my favorite elton john song i think what's your favorite album captain fantastic Me too. Yeah, yeah um i love it funnily enough you know he he recorded that on a boat on a on a not recorded it, wrote it on a boat during a sort of ferry cruise. And uh, he remembered the whole thing. He would, he would write it during lunch times when the sort of in-house resident opera performer wasn't using the rehearsal space. And he's about to write another album and he wants to try and do it the same way. He's not going to use a recorder. He wants to try and memorise it all as a challenge to himself. Because <laughs> he I doesn't think, have enough going on. I know, yeah. he's amazing. He's a force of nature. I think he'll do it as well. He really, he's sort of... You know, he's in his mind gym every day doing his crosswords and things. And he, I, I, his, he, I am constantly amazed by how quick-witted and sparky and 
fiery he is. And I think he'll do it. So as a serial over-preparer, I went back to watch a couple of your other films, including Robin Hood. Oh, yeah. I, and I have to say, I was impressed by the archery work especially, mm. and it made me wonder, do you feel like, it, what is the line between preparing and over-preparing for something? And when you're talking about whether it's something like an, on an action film like that, or Kingsman, or something like the singing and dancing of Rocket Man. I think it depends. I think it depends on what sort of preparation you're doing. If it's something that involves, uh, you know, a skill that is based around uh, muscularity and muscle memory, I don't think you can do enough. If you're talking about preparation in terms of <clears throat> meticulously planning your performance, I think that can be really detrimental because, the you know, it's not just about the actor. When you arrive on set, there are other actors that will condition your performance. There's an environment, there's the creative decisions that all of the other people around you make. You know, all of the designers, the crew members, the director, the music that's used, um, what you're wearing, you know. The, the job of the actor, I think, in my humble opinion, is to be as available as possible from the time they walk on set and to be as alive to their surroundings as possible. Filmmaking is inherently a collaborative medium and I think to over-prepare your performance to the point where it's kind of, where it becomes slightly manufactured, I think that could be, I think that could be the death of the performance. But in terms of, you know, preparation, like strengthening your voice for singing and, or in the case of an action thing, you know, making sure that you're physically prepared enough to perform whatever stunts you have to do or something like archery or piano playing. No, I don't think you can do enough, really. Fair. Um, what in Rocket Man surprised you about your own performance when you did finally watch it, when you could let go of that paranoia about how it was all going to come together? Was there something that you saw on screen and you were like, oh, I, I didn't know I had that in me? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I'm ple. Um, I think one of the great, one of the great experiments of doing it was that our movie, whether it be in terms of the costume design, what we do with the music, the liberties we take with fact, and the employment of fantasy, or indeed my characterization, mimicry of the fact of what happened was never was never the most important thing. Of course we wanted to be evocative and emulate things, but it's not intended to be a a carbon copy mm -hmm. performance of who Alton is. This was an enormous source of anxiety to me. Um, because you felt like you needed to be more of one or because no, even though no, you were I given the liberty to, you were worried I people wouldn't take it? No, I believed that it would work, but I wasn't certain of it. I was worried that, in fact, what would happen is we would see the performance and that it wouldn't feel like Elton John. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that I'm most pleased and relieved and proud of is that I think you accept me as him quite quickly and you invest in the character of Elton John, which is informed and determined and inspired by and in homage to him, mm -hmm. but is ultimately my creation. and. Um, and I am, um, people, it seems to heighten people's response to and affection for him. And given the fact that it's not, I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. I felt like the audiobook of his memoirs, which you recorded the yes. narration for, was kind of an extension of that, right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, one of the, you know, I've been asked a lot what I, what I asked Elton before recording that audiobook. <laughs> and I said, look, do you want me to try and, do you want me to sort of be you? Yeah. and try and emulate you, and he said, no, no, darling, just read it, you know, <laughs> read it. Um, and I think now I have such, you know, I have such strength of feeling for him and such a sense of protectiveness over him that, that, that everything, everything I do in relation to him is, in, is sort of, is kind of charged with how warmly I feel about him. So the book, you know, I read and, and, and wanted to make as, hopefully as accessible and as easy on the ears as possible. But again, it's not me trying to, of course there are elements of the performance, you know, that I, that are, you know, my voice gets deeper over the course of the film. And there's a, you know, my accent changes. It goes from being quite London to quite transatlantic by the end of it. And, um, and my physicality changes slightly, but they, those are the 
for me, those are the easy things. I mm-hmm. don't feel like those are the things that are the most interesting or taxing. Getting to the core of so, who, who someone is and and capturing their spirit, that, that's what I found most scary and daunting, but also ultimately rewarding. Um, sorry, I, I, all of a sudden I'm not sure if I'm making any sense. Yeah, no, sorry. you are. Sorry, rambling. Um, but I have a question about the audiobook. Did you, re- did you rehearse at all? Do you just read it cold? How, like, what? I mean, it takes tens of hours right. to read. I mean, so, it's like 11 or 12 uh, hours even in its yeah, finished form. Yeah, exactly. I would love to, to say that I rehearsed it, no. but... Did you... Ain't nobody got time for that, as they say. <laughs> yeah, but what about the impressions I'd read of it other before, people? but you I, hadn't, would, okay. I hadn't read it aloud. Okay. So I knew the story of it. Sure. Um, in fact, I was really lucky in that Elton gave me the chapters that were finished and in existence before we started shooting. That was a huge source of anxiety, having those in my carry-on. Um, Just don't lose that. Don't lose that, yeah, which David and Elton were both quite keen to remind me about. Um, but... Uh, uh, but yes, there's like I'd, very funny little impressions in there of his friends or people. Oh who yeah, knew. I mean, Did I mean, you ask no. him about those or had no. you heard versions of them? Oh, I mean, I'm not claiming that. that I mean, look, if I was <laughs> portraying those people, those those impressions would be far more rehearsed. Um, but yeah, you know, this I read John Lennon in there and I give it my sort of little version of John Lennon. Sure. But just for the record, any casting directors, don't hold <laughs> me, don't hold me to the impersonations I do of the well-known people in Elton's book. The book was, I, were there, I'm, somehow, despite Rocketman being such a dramatic film, right, obviously in both like real and fantasy kind of ways, the book was almost more dramatic. Were there scenes in the book yeah. that you wish had been in the film that like after you got through all of that, you're like, oh, I would have loved to dig my teeth into that as an actor? Um, I think, I mean, weirdly, you know, because obviously the moment of Elton embarking on his journey towards recovery is both the beginning and the end of the film. And so you couldn't have anything after. But I I did find reading the book, I found him, you know, ultimately it's a man looking for love. And so the moment where he finds it in David in the book, I found very moving. It wouldn't have worked in our film, but but... But I suppose that felt like a real, you know, his recovery is one arrival, but meeting David is another, is another, as is, you know, having their beautiful boys. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I suppose maybe that. Um, and I guess as well, you know, it's always fun to see, you know, our movie kind of exists. It's a reality all of its own. And that's kind of that's sort of fairly well demonstrated by the fact that all of the other extraordinarily famous people in Elton's life don't really factor in our film. Um, I suppose there's always a desire to see well-known faces, but Mm -hmm. also then you ground it in a reality that doesn't really belong to our movie. It gets like a little Forrest Gumpy. Well, it just, I mean, I mean, Forrest Gump is an amazing film. Right. I don't, you know, I, mean, I, I, mean, I, way, I just mean but, in the like, I mean, I, casual cameo of like, oh, here's, uh, yeah, here's I, Sean Lennon. Yeah, and I think, I just think then it gives, it all of a sudden gives it a very specific perspective that grounds it in, in a real world scenario. Mm-hmm. And actually Rocketman, I think, works and thrives when it feels like it's existing in a realm that isn't quite our world. It's not mm-hmm. quite our Elton. It's not quite the music that you exactly know. It's, you know, reimagined. Um, they're not the exact costumes, although, you know, it sort of looks, it feels like you're looking at them through fog. They're a little different. Um, and so to have those, those you know, the John Lennons, the Rod Stewarts, the Yoko Monos, you know, all of these people who have featured, you know, Princess Diana, although that was later, these in- extraordinary people in Elton's life, they would have, I think sort of slightly skewed what the film is, the DNA of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot more about Rod Stewart in there than I was expecting, which leads me They're to... super close, yeah. yeah. but Rod, among with many other people, get a drag name from Elton. Yes. Do you have a drag I do. name? What, will you tell me what it is? <laughs> I will. Okay. Um, my drag name, he gives a drag name to... I think that's how you know he really likes you. Um, my drag name, I'm Welsh. Okay. Which Elton loves. Um, my drag name is Blodwin, and my surname is Campervan, and the because st- I own a campervan, okay. and I love to spend time in it. Blodwin is a Welsh name; it's a derivative of the word flower. Um, <laughs> Blodwin Campervan, but he's Elton's very keen that the stress not be on Campervan; it's on Campervan at the end. Okay, so say it all in one. In fact, 
Blodwin camper van. Okay. Actually, when I was at his <laughs> house, I went to stay with him a few weeks ago in, in at his place in the south of France. And uh, after he went to bed, I found his Polaroid camera and I I borrowed my girlfriend's <laughs> clothes and I dressed up as what I imagined Blodwin <laughs> camper van might be and took some photos of me and my girlfriend. She drew a moustache on herself. So we both cross-dressed for Alton and David's amusement and put it in their guest book before we left. Did they tell you what they thought of it? They loved it, yeah, they did, they loved it. That's amazing. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because for this and for the movie and what you were talking about with the concerns of it not getting chopped down to something more tame, mm. you know, when Elton came out in 1976 in Rolling Stone, he was, he was basically the most famous gay person in the world mm. for quite a while. Mm. And I think changed and shaped how a lot of people thought about sexuality. Yes. And you in this film, I think have been in the promotion of this film, have been put in a position of having to talk about that quite a bit and yeah. talk about, I think both the queer community, but also yourself. But I'm wondering how did, how has your friendship with him and how has making this film changed or broadened how you think about sexuality? I don't think it has. I mean, you know, I, I I'm very fortunate in that I come from a liberal town and, you know, several of my closest friends felt comfortable enough to embrace their sexuality in our mid-teens and it was never an issue or um, or something that was difficult for anybody. Now, that being said, of course, that's a very specific experience and not the case the world over. But for me, if I may be so bold as to claim it, I have felt like a member of that community for as long as I've been a, 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 mm -hmm. an, an adult, an autonomous human, mm -hmm. uh, human adult, mm -hmm. you know? And so I don't feel like it has altered my opinions in any way. I don't feel like it's... Uh, I mean, I suppose there's a question where it's interesting and, you know, frankly, a little disheartening to know and, and begin to get an understanding of the mechanics of what embracing someone's sexuality in a film of this level does to its um, to its global box mm. office and how it will perform in certain territories. Um, that's a, you know that throws into very sharp relief the problems that that you that, that that exist the world over that aren't necessarily you know as I've just said that aren't things that you're aware of because in your mm -hmm. very microcosmic world it's completely fine. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that I have really enjoyed is that I've felt like, you know, I felt like I can be a passionate ally for the community in the promotion of the film. Um, and, and you know, I've had incredible messages from, from, from gay men and women who've found through the movie the strength to come out to their parents, who have, you know, expressed their gratitude for the film, the existence of the film, because they wish it's something that they could have had referred to in their teens and felt validated by and, and you know, to see that side of their personality celebrated in the way that I believe our film does. Um, and so I'm very, very, very proud, you know, Elton's recognisable the world over and there was a version of this film that we could have released that would have frankly made more money that didn't, um, mm -hmm. that didn't deal with that part of who he was. But I then wouldn't, there are too many people I love that I wouldn't have been able to look in the eye afterwards. So I'm very proud of what it is and what it's become and the journey it's been on because I believe that Rocketman has its integrity intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I feel like it would be a little disingenuous for us to talk about where Rocketman fits into award season without talking about Bohemian Rhapsody a little bit. Not yeah. in it because I think there's a way in which it's op like what Bohemian Rhapsody was able to do last year at the Globes and at the Oscars opened up a space for Rocketman mm. in a way that maybe wouldn't have been as easy to see had it not happened. Obviously, they're very different films. And I read that Elton said he didn't really feel like he could watch Bohemian Rhapsody because of his friendship with Freddie. But I'm wondering... I think they're separate things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm... I do think there's separate things. So I think my question is, do you feel in the conversations you've had with people that, or did you have a moment as you watched all of that happen that you were like, oh good, this is gonna have, people will understand that we can make a serious movie about 70s rock in a way that has, you know, an impact beyond that. Uh Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I felt that, you know, I thought Bohemian Rhapsody was great and I thought Rami, Rami Malek, who's a friend of mine, was 
phenomenal in the role. Um, you don't, I don't think, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't constantly appraising the journey of that film, wondering what it meant mm -hmm. for mine. Of course, you know, there are, there are parallels and of course your mind entertains ideas watching the journey it goes on. Um, I think, as you say, they're inherently different animals, but of course both deal with uh, British musical icons of one period. Um, yeah, sorry, what was the what was the nub of your question? I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> trying to dance around a multitude no, of ideas in I my mean, head. Yeah, same. I think I've just been trying to think about where to put it in that. I think because so much of sometimes of how people in Hollywood think about something is like this yeah. thing came before. So I think, you know, if you look at if you examine if you examine the last acts of those movies, I think Bohemian Rhapsody I found very moving, but at, at the end of the movie it's, you know, an exact replication of mm. um, of the live aid performance. So it's inherently a phenomenally entertaining thing mm -hmm. and by the very nature of that concert and that event it has this wonderful broad appeal rocket man because of the decisions we made creatively and because of the fact that it is a fantasy and i think has more of the sensibilities of a large art house movie it is fundamentally globally narrower in its appeal mm. and i don't think you can really argue with that by the very nature of the fact that you know we didn't open in china for example <laughs> you know? yeah. um that being said you know we're blessed with an increasing amount of diversity of different films that are, you know, reaching the big screen. Mm -hmm. That's hugely, hugely exciting. And I think there's room for both. Mm -hmm. and, um, and mainly I just watched what happened to that movie, feeling intensely proud for my friend Dexter, who was responsible for finishing the film off and intensely pleased for Rami, who is, you know, not only one of the most talented actors around, but also one of the nice, nicest and, mm -hmm. um, uh, and if it, you know, if it means that that people think of us more in that way because of that film, then wonderful. But um, I don't know. I think people, you know, people connect with what they connect mm -hmm. with, and hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I yeah. would hope that people would feel that way. But who knows? Yeah. Um, so you talked about how you feel like you don't get nervous or fluttery heartbeat when you are going to see Elton again. No, but not anymore. No, I did for the one time that I did. Yeah. <laughs> but you've also had the opportunity to do some pretty amazing things in conjunction with him. So mm. I saw, like, in it, you performed at the Greek Theatre here in Los Angeles yes, last as week, part yeah. of a live screening of that. Um, how was that? You sang one of my favorite songs of all time, Don't Let the Sun Go Down Me. Mine too, yeah. It was emotional for a number of reasons. You know, it felt like the kind of swan song celebration mm -hmm. of Rocket Man. I don't think we're going to get away with celebrating it anymore. We've done it several <laughs> times now. Um, but it was lovely, you know, and to have Elton there. I'd never been to that theatre. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, so unbelievably LA. And so much of the film is so LA. You know, mm -hmm. Elton is intrinsically entwined with this town. And so the film is by extension of that. And so to have a performance like that and a celebration of the film up in the, you know, up in the hills like that. Mm -hmm. It was really gorgeous. You seemed very confident on stage and like yeah. very like in your skin as a singer. Yes. Are, I mean, that's, are you going to make an I mean, album? Are you going to, no, like, have remember. you thought about it? No. I mean, I think the one thing that I really have to do, I, I really have to do because I'll never forgive myself. When I was 20, I said I was going to learn an, an instrument properly. And I'm about to turn 30 and I haven't. And I will not get to 40 without having done it. Because if I do it now and put my mind to it, in three years I could potentially be singing and accompanying myself. And I think if I don't do myself the service of, of, of spending time learning that skill, then I'm an idiot. And, um, and is that piano? Is that guitar? I think piano. I mean, I th I'd like to, I, I think I'll focus first on piano because I have a grounding in it. Um, but ultimately I'd like to play piano too. Um, guitar too, sorry, forgive me. Um, but essentially, I just want to have something that can accompany a vocal so that when I sing late at night at parties in a completely unsolicited fashion, it looks a little bit more valid and justified. And just in case <laughs> you also happen to get more serious and record some music, you could do I that. mean, look, I think for me, I'm not interested in doing an album of covers. You know, there are some incredible ones and more power to those who are interested. For me, it's not. It's not what I, it's not, for the moment, for me, it would feel, 
it just doesn't feel, I, I don't know. I don't think, I think maybe if you're a hugely, hugely accomplished singer, there's merit in it. Mm -hmm. But as, as someone who's still a reasonable novice, I just don't know what I would be doing. I would feel it would feel a bit farcical. That being said, if I if I learned an instrument and in ten years I felt that I was proficient enough to write some music, then of course I would entertain the idea. But it's not going to be something that happens anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I want to be a good actor first. <laughs> <laughs> I loved Rocket Man. I thank thought you it was so great. much, it's and thank really you for exciting. having me on your podcast. And I'm flattered to be the inaugural episode of this season. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you to Taryn for joining us for that conversation. Um, we're gonna take a quick moment here, David and JD and I, to stake out a bold take of our own. I feel like it's only fair if we're going to ask people to continue to listen through our various commentary about something that will happen three months from now, that we uh, you know, hold ourselves to some sort of wild, wild plan of what we think is gonna happen at the end. This is a really compressed Oscar season um, in the sense that the Oscars will be on February 9th, which is earlier because of the Winter Olympics, which means that the time span between the Golden Globes to the Oscars is basically under five weeks, which is as fast as it can possibly get, basically. Mm. Um, so all of this will happen very quickly once the nominations start to come out in December. But looking ahead now to that February 9th, David, what's one bold take you're willing to say you think will happen? I think Brad Pitt will win Best Supporting Actor this year for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think you're right. You have to yeah. have your own bold take. I'm going to get my <laughs> own bold take, but I think he stole mine. No, I'm going to go out on a limb, too, and I'm going to say, I don't know, is it a bold take to pick Adam Driver for Best Actor? I think it's a bold take, because it's yeah. a Netflix movie, and it would be huge for Netflix for him to win. But I don't think there's any dislodging him from that. Mm. I have other bold takes, but I'm going to save them. Save them. You're going to save them. But I think Brad Pitt is a really smart call. Yeah. You guys, I did not prepare a bold take. <laughs> oh, no. I, I know. Quickly I, make I, one. Quickly make one. I um, my, my Oh, God, my first bold take is so cynical. I... I would love to will into reality that this is going to be a great year for a woman director. Um, so let me say now that Greta Gerwig will win for Best Director. Wow, wow. that is a super bold That's take. very bold. It's a bold, bold take. I, it is, she I'm went boldest. To, she I did. Went, you went boldest. I went, I went safest. You went medium bold. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you guys for for talking through this early contenders. This is our you know our first, but far from our last. Um, we've got a lot more to come, even with this compressed season. Thank you, David, for all of these columns that I feel like are the cheat sheet for half of this discussion, but so. also for co-hosting this with me and doing a lot of additional interviews that we will have from other folks coming up. Um, where can people find each of you on Twitter if they would like to tell us what we think of this discussion? I'm at Shana Naomi. I'm at David Canfield 97. There are 96 other David Canfields? Not quite. <laughs> people think I was born in 1997 because of it, which is why I feel like I need to change it. I was not born in 1997. <laughs> no. uh, well, I think you should keep on to the 1997 of it all. It's not going anywhere. Um, I am at J.D. Heyman. All right. And I'm excited to hear from you if you're nice. But only if you're <laughs> nice. Only if you're nice. Mean Twitter should go somewhere else. <laughs> you can always find That's complete. Uh, true. true. You can find complete awardist coverage on EW.com and in the magazine. Um, we recently did a whole fall movie preview in the November issue, as well as a cover story that David wrote about Little Women. So if uh, you are excited about the prospect of that film, or if you start to get to see it in an early screening before it comes out, definitely um, make sure you take a look at that. Uh, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen and do rate and comment. It makes a really big difference. It helps other people find this. Um, we are going to next week hear from Parasite director Bong Joon-ho, who is, that film is outstanding. I think we all really loved and he is great to talk to yes. about it. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. This is The Awardist on EW. We usually take this like pretty close to live to tape. Sure. We edit if we need to, or if there's anything. Sure. Club, or yeah, like, yeah, what, yeah. What, did, what, what happened there? What or if I get do? if I go really boring. If you get really boring, we're just gonna stop in the middle and say that. Say. And stop there. Can someone get Taryn a coffee or boring. something? Because he's yeah. being mind numbingly. <laughs> I mean, it's a podcast, so anything goes, right? Sure.